Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey, well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. All right, everyone. Welcome to a, another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. So glad you're here. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. And our guest today is Justin Larson. He is going to share his recovery story about his alcoholism and getting out of that, and particularly talk about how when he was young, even at the age of eight, he was diagnosed with depression and what that's like and how hard that is when you're in that space and how definitely a substance in the moment can help with that. Really great story. And then we're going to talk about how he's taken that trauma and has created the Thrive Peer Support Network to help individuals who are struggling on a peer-to-peer level. Really enjoyed talking with Justin, and I think you will enjoy this episode as well and get a lot out of it. And I have a favor to ask. If you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please subscribe to it. Click that subscribe button or even leave us a review or rate us on iTunes. I'd really appreciate that. That really does mean a lot to me. And it helps individuals who might be struggling with addiction or need support find the podcast. And if you want to continue the conversation online, join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. All right, let's go ahead and start this episode. All right, everyone, we are on to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Justin Larson, and he is going to share his recovery story. And the topic we're going to address specifically is going to be peer recovery support. But first, Justin, introduce yourself. Let's get to know you a little bit more. Sure. Hi, everybody. My name is Justin Larson, 
and I am the Director of Health Systems for Thrive Peer Recovery Services. I'm also a person in recovery, a Ohio Certified Peer Recovery Supporter and CDCA. And yeah, I'd like to share my a little bit of my story with you and uh, so you can get to know me. Well, let's jump in. Let's just jump in. Where, where did it all start? Okay, so it started for me around 15, 16. You know, growing up, I, I had a really great childhood. Now that I look back on it with the perspective that I have today, at the time, if you would have asked me, you know, I would have had a different answer about how things are going. You know, right. I, I didn't really feel a part of the crowd, I guess you could say. I really was comparing everyone's outsides to my insides. And right. I just felt alone, full of fear for really no reason. Just uh, life was scary for me. And, you know, it was very difficult for me to connect to other people like I would see them connecting to each other. Right. You had said in your bio, when I was reading your bio, that you were diagnosed with depression at age eight, which is pretty young yeah. to be diagnosed for depression. Absolutely. Absolutely it was. I remember having just constant headaches, migraines. You know, my mother took me to a lot of different uh, doctors. I remember getting tested for allergies, just all the physical uh, symptoms right. trying to be treated. And the diagnosis was eventually depression. Wow. And you say, what does an eight-year-old have to be depressed over? And really, it's way more than that as far as the biological side of things. Right. But sometimes there's just a neurochemistry that we may sure. just have that yeah. is part of our biology and predisposes us to anxiety or depression. Correct. Yeah, it's way more than clinical depression is way more than just feeling sad or, you know, waking yeah. up and having the blues or, you know, something like along those lines. Right. So, right. you know, growing up, like I said, you know, I had these feelings that I didn't really know how to cope with or react to. So as I got older, you know, to really fit in with some of the crowd that I thought was cool, because I didn't feel cool. I had very low self-worth, low self-esteem. Right. I picked up a drink and it did something for me that I, I couldn't do for myself. It just took all that fear and that anxious, just those feelings of anxiety and not fitting in. And it just made it all go away. Right. And I fell in love right there. I thought, this is the way other people probably feel all the time. Yeah. This, this is how I want to feel. I would imagine that, you know, as an eight-year-old, even going into your teens, I mean, first off, it's even hard for us as adults to describe our inner world or when we're struggling with emotional pain. It can be difficult. But I would imagine, you know, a young kid having this kind of emotional pain there and how do you even tell anybody that wants to help you it sounds like your mom knew something wasn't right was trying to take you places but how do you even describe that as as a young person i i can remember you know being asked what's wrong and you're right i didn't really have the words to describe it so i just said 
I don't know, but nothing seems right. And that's really the best way I can describe it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's, it's not right. This isn't right. And then you find alcohol and that self-medication, like you said, it washes over you and you're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. This, this is what's been missing. That's what I thought. And if alcohol does for you what it did for me, you would understand my deep desire to have that feeling all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And it really just started to control my life because every time I drank, I, I kind of felt like this is the way I'm supposed to feel. This is how other people probably feel. I don't want to get into what's normal or anything like that, but it just filled that spot that I felt like I was, I was missing out on for the longest time. Yeah. How would you not want to let that go? If you've lived in all of this pain and hurt and depression, and this substance comes along and makes you feel okay, or gives you that feeling of that missing piece, it's like you wouldn't want to let that go in that moment, especially as a kid, you know, and you're going through all of that stuff trying to figure out life and it starts to just take over. Yeah, it, it really became my number one coping mechanism. It, it really was the missing link to life for me. It made me feel the way I, I wanted to feel and the way I thought I should feel as a kid and into my teens. And it really just made me be able to take that breath of relief that this is it. This I've found this substance that's really going to make me be able to live life and not just cope with life, but actually live life to the fullest. So I could be able to talk to other people, took away a lot of that social anxiety I was able to mix with the crowd and feel a part of it last. It just really was the missing link for me. Right. And so it really fit that piece. But it mm -hmm. sounds like, as you wrote in your bio, it started to turn on you. This harmless use, Yeah, it, it started not to fulfill its promise. Yeah, that that is the... <laughs> that is the crux of the alcoholism there, that... It really turned on me at a certain point. The fun was done for a decade after this. You know, I got sober when I was 32. So from about the age of 15 to 32, you know, it started out as this magic elixir that gives me this liquid courage that makes me feel whole, makes me feel a part of. I can, I can laugh with people. I can joke with people. I get along with people. And then it slowly started to become this necessity that I needed in my life that I couldn't go without. And that's a dangerous place to be in when I will do anything possible to get that next drink, put myself in certain situations that I have no business being in, really hurt all the relationships that I have in my life just because alcohol is my top priority. And, you know, I can see that there was the consequences that, as I got into my 20s, um, right. you know, car right. accidents, things like that that just happen with uh, even folks that may have a drinking problem. 
they'll end up with some consequences, whether it's DUIs and things of that nature. But for me, I drank because of the consequences. So I would get in trouble with the law, crash a car. Well, again, that's my coping mechanism that I, I've right. learned. This fixes everything, especially my insides. I get home and I'm sitting there after this horrendous car accident. And uh, I'm thinking, man, now's a good time for a drink. Right. You know, and that's the madness. That's the insanity that drinking causes these consequences. And then I drink because of the consequences. It's like this insidious feedback loop that just keeps making it worse and worse, but you can't let it go. Yeah, I, I don't know any other way to really feel my feelings and to have some sort of positive coping skills because the alcohol was my best friend. Like I said, since I picked it up at a young age, that was my best friend. That's who I got along with throughout all these trials and tribulations and consequences, I turned to my best friend. Yeah, yeah. And it slowly turns on me. And, uh, you know, a lot of good people in my life would tell me, you know, you have a drinking problem. Right. I'm not dumb. I'm not naive. Like, I, I see, like, the drinking is causing problems. But I would say to them, you would drink too, if you knew how I felt when I didn't drink. Yeah. Yeah. That is the whole reason I drink. In spite of consequences, in spite of the pain that it causes my family and the ones that love me the most and everything I put them through, I still drank on top of all that stuff. I had to. Yeah. I think that's such a hard thing for individuals who may not struggle with addiction to understand that deep psychological pain that is just unbearable and you have no other alternative that you know of at the time anyway to fix it to change it to get rid of it it's an awful feeling it's a it's a deep darkness or a deep fear it's incredibly hard to tolerate it's a very dark and lonely existence. It really is. You know, I remember towards the end waking up and not wanting to drink. But again, I don't know what else to do. I have to drink. And I remember waking up, being upset that I woke up another day and thinking, here we go again. Another day of this. I can't bear it. It's a very right. difficult existence. E extremely. And here's your best friend, as you said, in a way now betraying you. And at some point, you have to say, this relationship is not working and I got to let it go. So how yeah. did you get there? H how did that start to say, okay, I got I to gotta do something different? So alcohol stopped working for me. It really did. I tried for so long to stay as inebriated as possible, as long as possible. I was the guy that always had a beer in my hand. As soon as I woke up, I would crack a beer and, and start drinking. And the physical dependence comes after right. a long right. time of doing that. So it's a physical aspect to it as well. But 
if you got in my car, you know, I've been drinking, you know, yeah. I probably got beer behind my seat. I was the guy that was just drinking if my eyes were open and I was awake and that eventually it stopped doing what it did for me in the beginning. And I just couldn't stay drunk long enough. It just stopped working for me. It, it stopped being my solution to everything. And that's the point where I, I'm left with the decision that, okay, I don't know what to do at this point because I have to drink, but it, it doesn't work for me anymore. So if I don't drink now, what am I left to do? And that's right, a right. very dark, dark place to be because that's where suicide starts sounding like a good option. Yeah, absolutely. Very scary. Yeah. And if I would just say if anybody out there is listening and, and they're at that space, please reach out for help. There is help. There absolutely is help. There is people to talk to. At the time, I had some really good family members in my life that have their own experience with what I was going through. And they could kind of see that in me. And even back before it got to this point, you know, I was, I was given warnings about this is where it would lead to. And they were absolutely correct. And when I got to that point where I can't live with it, I can't live without it. What's the point of even living anymore? Thankfully, I had someone there that was able to help me. And that's when I went off to treatment. You finally took that step and said, I, I got to get this help. I've got to do something. Yeah, I finally uh, surrender, I think probably looks different for, you know, a lot of folks. But for me, it was to the point where I was I was out of options, just spiritually bankrupt. I had no friendly direction. I kind of always had a plan for times in the past when I'd, I'd get into trouble or like I said, I was in a lot of automobile accidents or, you know, I always had some sort of plan that, okay, I'm going to do it different this time. And this is how I'm not going to end up back in this situation. And at the end there, I, I didn't have any plans left. Like I said, I was out of options. I had no more excuses, no more reasons to, uh, not go to treatment. I couldn't come up with anything. It's not like I had responsibilities. I didn't have a job. I didn't, you know, all of that was destroyed throughout the years. So I, I finally surrendered enough and said, I just, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. This, this thing called life. Apparently I just, I have no skills for dealing with anything. And right. uh, that's when I went off to treatment. Wow. And you were able to at least start to get those skills. I mean, that, that there are people there that can help you in that direction. Yeah, I had a lot of really, really awesome counselors at the treatment center I went to. And like I said, I was finally broken down enough to sit there and listen. Because like I said, I was the I was the I know guy. You know, people would tell me what what I need to right, do. And I say, right. I know, I know, I know, I got this, I know. Well, at this point, I was beaten down enough to just be able to sit there and listen and shut my mouth and listen to these counselors that I still get to see today. And um, every time I see them over seven years later, I still thank them from the bottom of my heart because they really helped me. 
I was in treatment and uh, I think for the first three days, all these emotions came up. I was finally physically detoxed and having to deal with all of these emotions. I just cried for about three days straight. It was just quite all an there. It's all there. But at the same time, you've got some people around you that have some skill at helping you. You're not alone. You have people that are there. They understand it on certain levels. They can get you and they can walk you through that and start you on this new journey that you went into. Yes. Like I said, they helped me tremendously. They understood me. They talked to me, but they also listened to me. And they truly could understand what I was feeling at the time. And that made a world of difference. Yeah. I made a decision that I'm going to go through this. Uh, I'm going to try this recovery thing. I'm going to stay in treatment. I'm going to do everything I'm told. And really, it was just because I knew what was behind me and I knew that way of life. So whatever this new journey was, it can't be as bad as what I just went through for years. So the, right. the fear of the unknown was not enough to keep me from going back to that way of life that I came from. You know, it's it's a very scary thing to, like I said, kind of lose my best friend that I had had for years that had finally turned on me. And like I said, I was in a very dark place. Uh, there were suicide attempts. And now I'm going to try this recovery thing. And people tell me it's worth it if I stick with it. And for some reason, I am willing and open-minded uh, to trust them and to walk this new path, this new way of life. Right. And as you went through that, you went, went through that whole experience, you say in your bio, you said, I decided that helping others was going to be my purpose in life. That through all of this experience, I know we're kind of switching gears a little bit here, but through all of that experience, I decided that I, I needed to help others. So let's start to talk about that. And I want to start talking about the importance of having, you know, peer recovery and these other people in your life to walk you through it, because it sounds like that was critical for you in this Absolutely. process was that there were these others out there that could hold me when I couldn't hold myself. Absolutely. So I had folks in my life that cared about me enough, like you said, when I didn't care about myself. And I remember that and what a huge impact and difference that had in my recovery, especially early recovery, when I felt alone and like nobody understood me. Well, I had some folks in my life that really changed my mind about that. And I want to be that person and help others in their journey as well. And it really helps me. Because I remember being that person in early recovery. So if I can give back in any sort of way, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning, right? Is that's my purpose in life. I went through hell and clawed my way out of it. And I want to be able to lend my hand to others to help them get out of that too. And that's why I love peer recovery support so much. It is such a passion of mine to be able to assist others 
And sometimes it's just about planting a seed and letting them know that recovery is possible and being that example of recovery in action. And other times it's it's really about holding their hand until they can walk on their own two feet themselves. You know, after treatment, I was fortunate enough to get offered a job driving a, a van and picking up clients for uh, their treatment, for their outpatient treatment. And I fell in love with the conversations that we had in that van on the way to treatment. It's just a bunch of us in recovery, and we're just talking about recovery and coming up with solutions and bouncing ideas off of each other and just sharing our lived experience. And I look back on that, and I'm so thankful because that led me, that kind of fed my appetite for helping others and really fostered that idea of, hey, there's something to this. And eventually, peer recovery support was further down the line for me. And I love it. I absolutely love it. So let's let's define what peer is, because I, I think that's so important to understand the nuance of that, because there's also professionals which can hold you. And it sounds like in your inpatient experience, that was there as well. Mm-hmm. But th- there's something special about being with a peer. And what is that? What makes that unique? So it's a very organic conversation that comes up between a peer and a peer recovery supporter. It's that identification piece that the peer can relate to the peer recovery supporter. It is the ultimate peer to peer model that me as a peer recovery supporter, I truly know what you're going through right now. I have felt the same exact way. I know how it feels to be in your shoes right now. And if I can add a solution to that and show you that there is a way out of that, that you don't have to live that way of life anymore, I will share my experience to try to motivate and encourage you to sometimes take that scary next step towards recovery. So it's the the idea that I know what you're going through. I've been there myself, but I found a way out. Let me share that with you in hopes to motivate you to get out of that deep, dark place. And I'll help you every step of the way. And you're not alone. Yeah, it's like they can see a possible picture of themselves. Like when you're in that hopelessness and you can't, you think you can't, get out, all of a sudden you see someone there in front of you that's done it. That's, like you said earlier, crawled their way out. Because sometimes when you're in that deep, dark pit, it it is, it's like, you got to crawl yourself out. And to be able to see someone else who's done it, it's just like, okay, that alone is just hopeful. Generates some positive possibilities. Yeah, the the goal is to really share my lived experience to instill hope that it, it is possible for you as well. And sometimes it's just about listening because like I said early in my story, I felt like I wasn't being heard. And when I had someone that was in that treatment center sit down and listen to what I had to say and say, I understand. I, I understand you. I get you. That made a world of difference. 
So sometimes it's just about being an active listener. Sometimes it's about using narrative therapy, motivational interviewing, but it's it's also a very non-clinical role. That's the difference between, say, a counselor or a therapist where they may not be able to share much about their lived experience or they may not even have lived experience in recovery. Um, whereas a peer supporter, that's that's all the ammo I have to use is my lived experience. So I can self-report everything I've been through in hopes that you identify with it and can relate. And then, like I said, couple that with a solution to get out of that that place. Right. It's like these different roles, you have therapist, counselor, peer support, they all have a different aspect that play into someone getting support and working through their addiction or mental health issue. They all have different roles to play. Correct. And they all play an important role in in a treatment team to where peer support, peer recovery support is sometimes just about helping to pick up the pieces, right? Right. So for Thrive Peer Recovery Services, we have peer supporters in 24 different hospital settings throughout the state of Ohio. And most of those are in emergency departments. And most people don't go to the emergency department when they're having a good day. So it's usually the worst day of their life. They may have just uh, survived an opioid overdose and were Narcan brought back to life. They may be intoxicated off of a number of substances. And we have people in these emergency departments that have that lived experience themselves that can say, hey, I know what you're going through. I, I I was in a patient bed myself. Now I get to help others and I want to help you. So it's it's really part of that clinical team, but it's a non-clinical role that sometimes fills fills the void um, to where yeah. physicians. Yeah, I would imagine it's like you know that that is their only role there. They're not the ER doc telling you to mm-hmm. stop drinking. You know, they're not the nurse telling you to stop drinking. There's someone that's been there. That's that's the, all they're doing is to be there, which sometimes. Correct can help you feel safe enough to say, all right, I, I need help. You get it. You understand it. I, I need support. And that, that can be the trigger that changes the course in someone's life. You know, it's like that one thing, that one moment that you can create for that person, you may switch their whole destiny, their whole outcome. And yeah. You're you're not the ER doc giving them a lecture. You're not the nurse giving. You're like I'm here to I'm here to help you. I I have no other role. Absolutely. I remember waking up in a hospital bed. I had blood dripping down my forehead. I didn't know how I got there. I didn't even know what city I was in. And I remember the white lab coat coming up to me, the physician, and they're there to really treat the medical symptoms. And they said, what happened? He said, I don't know. Turns out I was drinking and crashed a car. I was not very truthful with what I could remember to those white lab coats, correct? Right. But if a person in recovery that comes in, and I said, very non-clinical, organic conversation that kind of takes place that says, hey, can I help you? I've been there myself. 
I remember when, and then they share their story and their lived experience and emphasize the pertinent parts that are going on. It makes a world of difference. So it's part of a treatment team. It's not in place of any of the the doctors or the nurses or even the social work. Um, We work very closely with those folks because it takes a village sometimes. And we're there really just to help out with that lived experience piece. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about your life now and going through all of this. You know, you went through all of this darkness. What is it like to live in recovery? My life is amazing. My life is absolutely worth all of that stuff that I went through. I have such a positive perspective on life today. And I get to help others. That's the bright spot of my life. That really is the icing on the cake. So I'm grateful for all the trauma and all the experiences that I went through, because that's just more ammo I have to help out the next person um, that may be going through that, because I made it out and I have a really tremendously full, wonderful life today. And the main part of it is that I get to help others that are just like me. And there's no, there's no greater high than helping others. Yeah. It's like you, you get to hold the hope for them when maybe they can't hold it for themselves. And it's just a meaningful thing to do with all of your past history and pain. So as we get close to the end, there's always a question I like to ask at the end. If someone is out there and maybe they're struggling, right? Maybe they're at that space where they don't know what to do next. If you could tell them one thing, what would you want to tell them? Hold on. It it gets better. I I know what you're going through. I've been there myself. It seems like there's no options and there's no way out. I know that because I felt that way too. But here I am over seven years later, and I'm telling you it's worth it if you just hold on. Please reach out for help. There's folks that know exactly what you're going through and can help you. Please accept the help. Please be willing to make a change. I know it's scary. It was for me, but it's so worth it. It's so worth it. Oh, thank you so much, Justin. Where can people find you if they want to get a hold of you, want more information? Where can they find you? Sure. We have a ton of info on our website, www.thrivepeersupport.com. We have a a ton of information on there, a ton of resources. It's just a one-stop shop for all things uh, recovery and peer recovery support. Justin, thank you so much for sharing your story and your wisdom and your experience. My pleasure. My pleasure. I'm just, I'm so thankful to be able to share my story in hopes that, uh, you know, it can help just one person. That's what we do. We're we're all in this thing together. So we got to help each other out and lean on each other at certain times. But I thank you for this opportunity. This has been really fun. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. So you can check that out there. 
And don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, click the subscribe button or the follow button wherever you get your podcast or whatever podcast platform you're on so you can get an update of all the future episodes. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day. And I will talk to you on the next episode. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.